If you will please take your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews and the 6th chapter. We return to Hebrews chapter 6. If you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray that you would show us your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to exalt the risen Christ, lift high the name of Jesus, magnify his glory. Father, in the midst of all that we do and all that we are, so often the main thing becomes lost in our confusing things. So, Lord, help us to recover that which is most important, the name of Jesus, the person of Christ. Help us honor him and help us to love you as we are called to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are many names given in the Bible. Names of men, many names given for God, as he so often revealed to us some portion of his nature or power and was then called by a name that commemorated that truth. But the name that stands above every other name in the Scripture... In fact, the name that stands above every other name in all of creation and eternity alike is the name of Jesus. It is a name that divides friends and separates families. It cuts off those who honor it from a world that hates it. Pay attention to the way that people will act when you define Jesus as he defined himself. The world is fine with us loving God. They do too. They're just not specific about the God that they serve. But when you set yourself to follow after the biblical Jesus, they will come unglued. It's not accidental. It's not circumstantial. It's evidential. They cannot love the Jesus of the Bible because their hearts are dead, and dead hearts hate the living. Jesus is the author of life, and every fight to end life is a fight against him. It's a fight against his power and against his name. And is therefore a name that we must hold high and proclaim from every corner, rooftop, and mountain. Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. It is a singular name. What the scripture tells us is that there is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Look with me at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I just want you to understand that this is not a negotiable matter. It's not that God has presented himself to us by many different names and many different religions and many different ways are open to come to him. God has been very specific. And in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 8, we find this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you of all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders and has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, lest you think that Peter waxes eloquent and stands apart from what Jesus himself said, remember what Jesus told us in John 14, chapter, chapter 14, verse 6, when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father except by him. This, this is not something that the church has added on to somehow strengthen our position in the world. This is the central truth of the entire Bible. This is the reality of the world in which we live. If you want access to the God who exists, the only way to get to him is through the person and the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other avenue open. There is no other path by which you might find God. He alone is our source. He alone is our opportunity to know the God who is. And the writer of Hebrews is being very careful here to use the name of Jesus. Remember that we have been, um, we've been in this parenthetical conversation. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about how this is where he's beginning to close that parenthesis and come back to his discussion about Melchizedek and how Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he, he doesn't want there to be any confusion. And so he comes in and very carefully and very specifically reinserts the name of Jesus into the conversation. Look again at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 20. And he says that the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus. He's saying, remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus being the one person who is our hope, who has gone ahead of us, who has made a way for us. And he wants to make sure that nobody is confused about what he's talking about. He's not speaking about anything else anymore. He wants the reader to be clear about the focus of the discussion. And this focus is something that is singular and pointed. And I just want to say to us as followers of Christ, that pattern should be ours. We need to be very clearly, specifically, particularly, emphatically focused on holding high the name of Jesus. All too often, the church gets swept into conversations, discussions, and, and wranglings about every other thing. Despite all of the, the scriptural declarations that we shouldn't get into disputes about genealogies and lineages, and he said, she said, and all these kinds of things, we need to be very clearly focused on what it is that we are supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be proclaiming the name of Jesus. We are supposed to be ambassadors for Christ who carry the proclamation of the gospel. And the gospel is very clearly defined as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. We need to be telling the story of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we need to bring our focus back onto that which is the main thing. Now there are a lot of things that need to be taught and a lot of things that need to be understood that surround that issue. But if at any point in our existence as a body, we cease to be focused on the gospel as our priority, we have lost our way. And we need to bring it back to what we're supposed to do. 
The gospel is the priority. It is always the heart, the soul, the core, the center of what we do. There is nothing that will bring peace to our troubled world but the name of Jesus. He alone is the king of peace. Nobody else will ever bring peace to the earth. And if we want to see the culture war won and our nation return to a time of life instead of death, then we have to be clear about what the only hope is. And I want you to understand, it is not a political party. It is not a political figure. The world will not be won in the next election. And truthfully, the world wasn't lost in the last one. As as much as it pains me to tell you that, the world wasn't lost in the last one. What, What we have to understand is that God is in control of all things and He wants us to be faithfully proclaiming the gospel. That is our hope. And when we allow ourselves to become sidetracked onto the everything else that the world is all all about, we lose our one advantage. We lose our one edge. We have one message and one message only. And that message is the name of Jesus Christ. That message is the proclamation of the truth of who He is. I want to return back with you to Acts chapter 4, and I want you to see the implications of what it looks like when we live this out. Because it is not without cost, and it's not without compromise. Acts chapter 4, we'll pick it up at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them, and it's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak no to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they would further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them. Because the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Now I want you to understand a couple of things that are shown to us in this. First of all, even the enemies of Christ know that there is power in the name. Do you notice what they forbade? They did not forbid them from healing anybody else. They didn't forbid them from doing any other good work. They didn't forbid them from any other miracles. What they forbade them from was speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. You want to talk in the name of somebody else? Go ahead. You want to quote the rabbis? Feel free. You want to bring in the latest cultural poll? Go right on ahead. We're okay with all of that. You want to try and be culturally relevant? Feel free. Just don't talk about Jesus. Don't speak his name. Don't say it. Don't tell anybody about him. And we'll get along just fine. This is the counsel of those who are the enemies of Christ and therefore the enemies of God. Because the name of Jesus saves, heals, 
and restores. Always. Now, I'm not talking about the name of Jesus healing in some sort of magical thinking kind of way. So you're not allowed to run around claiming things in the name of Jesus that aren't yours. It's not, a, it's not a master card to get you every little thing that you've ever wanted. This is not about, in the name of Jesus, I, I rebuke you from doing that thing that I don't like. That's not what we're talking about. But the name of Jesus is powerful. It is strong. It is the truth that the gates of hell cannot stand against us. And when we have surrendered to His authority, we live under His authority, and His authority over the world extends through us. Now, I want you to notice where it begins. It begins with us submitting to His authority. And that takes all the foolishness off the table. Because Jesus is not running around wanting things that are not the will of God. Remember, Jesus said that I listen to the Father and I do what I see the Father doing. I speak the words that God gave me to speak. I do the things that God tells me to do. I live under His authority. And this reality of authority is something that we have to recognize. We, as followers of Christ Jesus, live under His authority. That means that the questions about what we do or don't do, what we say or don't say, where we go or don't go, they are defined by His Word, through His Spirit, clearly under His authority, and that is what we do and nothing else. As the body of Christ, our entire function is to be faithfully living out what Christ has told us to do. This gives us great power. Because here's the truth. God will always have His way. Amen? Amen. And if God will have His way, and we are walking in obedience to the way that God wants us to walk, what does that mean for us? It means victory. It means triumph. It may not look the way we want it to look. It may not look the way that we think it should. But it's going to be exactly what God intends it to be. And therefore, it's going to be right. In the end, what we have to recognize is that our obligation is to live underneath His authority and not anybody else's. This is the time for the possibility of dual allegiance is long past. You cannot be both a friend of God and a friend of the world. The two are mutually exclusive. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, beginning at verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, this means that our desire largely defines our destination, for we will always aim for what we desire. Now, Jesus is not engaging in a non sequitur in the middle when he starts talking about the eye 
And then goes back to who will you do? Because the eyes represent the desires of the heart. The things on which we set our eyes are the things which we desire. We look with longing. We must have it. The cost becomes invisible to us. Though it is obvious to all the world that we have sold our souls, we are blinded by our lusts. And we need to pay attention to this, beloved. We need to really pay attention to this. What is it that you want? What is it that you're gazing on? What is it that you're looking at saying, oh, if only I had... If only that thing were this way, if only this circumstance were changed, if only that reality was slightly different, if only I could have this guy's marriage or that guy's life or this guy's possessions, if only I could have that life, then my life would be good. What is it that you're gazing on? What is it that you're looking for? Because in the end, the only thing that you should be looking for is Christ. Because all of those other things distract you from Him. And all of those other things distract you from truth. And all of those other things create strongholds in your life from which the enemy can level assault. Jesus said it very plainly. You cannot love both God and mammon. And in the end, the desires that are not Christ lead us into ruin. Proverbs 25, verses 27 and 28 say, It's not good for a man to eat much honey. And to seek one's own glory is not glory. Therefore, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls, subject to attack. So if you're allowing your desires to run amok and you're thinking, it's okay, it's only a want, I'm not acting on it, you're a fool. You have to control these things. You have to pay attention to these things. You have to be mindful of them. Because your desires will always define your destination. They will always define what you're headed towards. There's no such thing as a desire that is innocuous. A desire is always a magnet. It's always pulling you towards something. And if your desires are contrary to Christ, if your desires are contrary to holiness, they need to be purged out of your life. You need to remove them. Because holiness is always the aim. Now, the writer of Hebrews is very careful to define the role of Jesus as he explains this, saying that Jesus has gone into the veil. And he starts off with this role of forerunner. So Jesus being the forerunner, again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20 says, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the forerunner has gone before us in every way. He has defeated death. He has removed the curse of our father Adam. He has purchased forgiveness for us by his own blood. And he has gone ahead to our heavenly home and is there even now preparing a place for us. All of those things were accomplished by Christ in our stead. When Jesus died, he died for his own people. And having died for his own people, he made a way for them to follow after him. Death no longer holds any power over us. Yes, we will die physically. Unless we are still alive when Christ returns, every person in this room will taste physical death. But you will not die spiritually. You will not be cut off from God and banished to hell if you are found in Christ. And that is the hope. That is the triumph. That is the power. Because everybody recognizes the truth that this life is a very temporary thing. Everybody recognizes the truth that every day that you will grow older is one day you are closer to death. 
That's just the reality of it. We all know this in our bones, whether we acknowledge it or not. It's just the truth of our lives. We know that there is a finite time we attend funerals. We see people born. We see people die. We see the span of a man's life, and we say, that was him. That defined him. What we don't always acknowledge is the truth that past that moment of finite end, there is the rest of eternity. And everything that goes into this tiny little package that we call life pays dividends in the rest. So if you plant in your life things that only tend to this life, what you reap in that life is death. But when you plant in this life things that aim towards God, what you reap in that life is life eternal. This is the truth. And this is the trade-off. This is what God tells us that we need to be living towards. So the forerunner has gone ahead. He has prepared this way and he has removed all of these things. And he has done this as a high priest. Now the job of the priest was to stand between God and man and offer sacrifices and to atone for the sin of mankind. In the Old Testament, the, the three roles that Christ fulfills, prophet, priest, and king, were split up into three different persons. The prophet spoke to the people on behalf of God. The priest intervened with God on behalf of the people. And the king ruled as a proxy for God over the people. Jesus has become for us all three of these, prophet, priest, and king. And so in his high priestly role, he entered into the very presence of God and offered the sacrifice that would be accepted. No longer are we counted as enemies of God, for we have been adopted as his children. No longer are we kept out of his presence by our own sin, but we are invited, even commanded, to come boldly into his presence. And the price of your entry, the price of your passage, has been forever splashed in scarlet upon the very foundations of God's throne. The mercy seat is open to you because Jesus shed his blood to pay your passage. That is why you are welcome into the presence of God, because for your sin, his blood was shed in atonement on your behalf. This was his role as high priest. He was offering the sacrifice that was required by the justice of God. God did not just say, well, let's just ignore their sin. They're Christians and they carry my name, so we're going to act like their sin doesn't matter. That's not how it works. He said, they are my people and therefore I must atone for their sin. Their sin must be paid for. And the penalty which sin requires is death. So those who are outside of Christ will pay for their sin with their own death, both physical and then spiritual, eternal separation from God, eternal punishment in hell. But those who are found in Christ, Jesus himself endured the wrath of God on our behalf. It wasn't just a physical death. When he died, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. The chastisement for our sins was upon him. The full and in unendurable wrath of God was, was lavished upon Jesus when he died on the cross. He drank your portion of hell. And in doing that, he freed you from its grip. He made a way for you to enter into a relationship with God that is eternal. Now this eternal relationship was founded by an eternal priest. 
having established a priesthood that will never end and will never lose its ability to fulfill its obligations. In other words, the sacrifice that Jesus made did not have a time limit on it. In the Old Testament, when the priests offered sacrifices, they did it over and over and over and over again because, as Paul tells us in Romans, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The sacrifices that they offered were merely a holding pattern. And God looked upon them with mercy and allowed them to stand in the stead of the sacrifice that he himself would make for our sin. But Jesus, having become an eternal priest, made a sacrifice once for all, and in that sacrifice, it is a never-ending reality. It had a singular effect. And he needs no replacement. That means that Jesus is never going to need to retire from his job as high priest. He's never going to need anybody else to step up and take over his job. He's not ever going to need somebody else to go, well... Maybe I should do it for a while because you're not doing a very good job of it. He's never going to get too old to fulfill it. He's never going to become obsolete. His sacrifice stands forever. His priesthood of intercession on our behalf is an eternal thing. He stands in the presence of the Father and intercedes for us. This is the eternal priesthood of Christ. He alone is our priest. And no other man can ever be a high priest unto God. No other man can ever fulfill this role. There is nobody else who can ever intercede for your sin between you and God. Not a priest, not Mary, not a saint, not Buddha, not anybody else. There is nobody else who will ever be able to stand between you and God and account for your sin. That is something that only Jesus can do. The scripture tells us that there is one God and one man and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He is the one who fulfills that obligation. Nobody else can, nobody else is qualified, nobody else is capable. The priesthood of Christ is a singular, eternal priesthood. He has entered into the veil behind it, and it is Jesus alone. The sacrifice has been offered. Romans chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was raised because of our justification, so the sacrifice has been accepted. And he has entered the presence behind the veil where he has been welcomed, and the reward of his sacrifice has been paid to him on our behalf. So understand this. What has been given to Christ has been given in trust for his people. What's been paid to Christ, the life that he purchased for us, he purchases it and he holds it out to us and he distributes it to his people so that we might partake of what he purchased. This is his role as priest. He is distributing this goodness to us. He is distributing this mercy to us. He is distributing this life. And its efficacy is sufficient for all of time and eternal. He is able to save, and he will save every single person for whom he offered himself. Nobody will miss heaven who is intended to be saved by God. It's his mercy It's his freedom, it's his choice, it's his power, it's his salvation, it is he. 
And Jesus has established this eternal priesthood as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about Melchizedek because the writer of Hebrews spends all of chapter 7 talking about Melchizedek. So I don't want to spend too much time today, but I do want to just point out to you that we don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek, which is a confusing thing to the Jewish mind. Because for them, the idea of a priesthood is entirely connected to the genealogy. Where do you come from? What family did you come out of? How do I know that you are who you say you are? And they tracked those things very carefully. But this guy, Melchizedek, he didn't have any lineage. He didn't have any, anybody to, to promote him in any way. And we'll talk a whole lot more about who I think Melchizedek was, and we'll, we'll unpack some scripture to talk about that as we get further in. But you need to recognize that what the writer of Hebrews is pressing on us is that this priesthood, because it is something that is established outside of the norm, it is a singular thing. And as a singular thing, it steps above and beyond the human mandates of what the priesthood would look like. No other priest was there. No other human tradition was needed for the sacrifice of Jesus to be accepted. Just chew chew on this with me for just a second. If it wasn't according to the order of Melchizedek, then the place of Jesus' offering was wrong. Shouldn't have been on the cross. Should have been in the temple. The manner of his death was wrong. Shouldn't have been on a cross. Should have been at the end of a knife. The person doing the slaying was wrong. Shouldn't have been Rome. It should have been the high priest. All the little details fall in. All these things were strange. And so if we look at this and say that the priesthood is removed from this because the priesthood is above this, it starts to make sense. What God gives to us is a priesthood that is not needing any other human intervention. The songs were not sung. The incense was not burned. The showbread was not refreshed. The temple was not the location. The vestments were still safely stored. And everything there was done by the hand of God himself. King Jesus was the fulfillment of the picture of the Old Testament worship. And his word surpassed every single part, every single scrap of meeting. He was only about this moment. The king in agony dying for the subjects in order that they might be set free from their rebellion against his rule. This is what it all comes down to. The king dying for his people. And the king dying for his people to set them free from their own rebellion. It's the most amazing thing to pause and consider. That God did all of these things and that because it was God doing them, he did them in such a way that our help was neither welcome nor needed. He didn't do it in any way that would allow humankind to have any say in it. And and I would contend that for the church, we need to fight for that. Because it wasn't Rome who killed Jesus. It wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus, although blame is laid at all of their feet. It was God who killed Jesus. Isaiah tells us that it pleased the Father to crush him. It pleased the Father to crush him. Because I remind you that the main thing being done on the cross was not the physical death of a man, but the outpouring of the wrath of God on the sins of his people. That's what was being done. 
And nobody else was qualified to do that. Nobody else ever could. So this name of Jesus is not only a singular name, it's a powerful name. It means Jehovah is salvation. The name Jesus is the Greek terminology of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, if you're reading it in the Hebrew. And it is the name that God told Mary that she was to call Jesus. Luke one thirty one says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the name foretold the reality of who this person was going to be. But more than that, it has been foretold throughout all of Scripture. The reality of Christ is woven throughout the whole of the Bible. Jesus is the central theme of the entire Scripture. Luke 24, 27 says, and this is after his resurrection, speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, being Jesus, expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning to himself. So from Moses on, from the very story of creation, in fact, the earliest emphasis about Christ coming as Messiah is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God said that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That that is the very beginning of the story of Christ as far as his declaration to us, although he exists in Scripture even prior to that, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. The name is Joshua. Jesus is a Greek transliteration. And the name Joshua is foretold as the man who would be the branch and who rebuilds and eventually becomes the very temple of God. Look at me at Zechariah chapter 6. Now often in Old Testament prophecy, you'll find that there are multiple uh, fulfillments. There's a partial fulfillment something that's given for a specific time. Um, the, uh, the prophecy given in Isaiah, for example, when it talks about the Emmanuel prophecy, and he says the virgin will conceive and bear a child. So there is there's a, the reality that, that that occurred as a time stamp for the message given to the king in the days of Isaiah. But it wasn't a miraculous virgin birth. It just meant that your, your young bride is going to become a mother. And when the child, before the child is old enough, to know right from wrong, then these things will come upon you. So it was a timestamp, But it also was a messianic prophecy. So there was a later, greater fulfillment. And we know that that later and greater fulfillment was in the virgin birth of Christ because Jesus had no human father, Mary being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And that is not a minor point of doctrine, by the way. It's something that we need to fight for. Because if Christ is just a man, he's not qualified to do what he did. Okay? But Zechariah chapter 6, starting at verse 19, and I'll I'll try to make all of that make sense here for you. I'm sorry, starting at verse 9. You'll have a hard time finding verse 19. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Receive the gift from the captives, from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, who have come from Babylon, and who go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Jeconiah. Take the silver and the gold, and make an elaborate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now this is a, a prophecy, this is a statement of what is to be done during the time of the rebuilding after the Babylonian captivity. 
But more than that, it's a reference to some prophecies that were made in both Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel about this man, the branch, who was the branch of the rod of Jesse, who would be the one who would establish the Davidic throne forever. And what this is telling us is that the person who will sit upon the throne of David is going to be named what? Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus. He's the one who's going to establish the throne. He's the one who is going to stand where no other has stood. He will build the temple and pay attention to the fact, I said, remember, in the Old Testament, prophet, priest, king, three separate roles. Three separate individuals. Who gets the throne? The king does. And yet we have this priest, Joshua, wearing a crown, sitting on a throne. What are we seeing? We're seeing that it's pointing to something greater than he is. We're seeing that it's pointing to something that is still yet to come. Ultimately, what this means is that Jesus has been foretold to us, and this is just one small example. Jesus has been foretold to us throughout the Scripture. Jesus has been promised to us over and over and over again. And I just love the fact that in the Old Testament, they even gave you his name. I think that's pretty cool. Because in the end... The name of Jesus is more than just a name. It was the name that was given and the name that he took and the name under which he suffered his humiliation. He bore the name of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus walked the earth and the, and the people would try to say, you're the Messiah, you're the Messiah. Was he the Messiah? Yes, he was. Did he ever acknowledge it publicly to them? No. In fact, he, he put off the question. And he never really acknowledged it openly until he was charged at his trial, in the name of God, I command you, tell me whether or not you are the Christ. It's the first time Jesus publicly declared that he was who he was. And what did he say exactly? You say it. (laughs) Even then, he didn't really say, yes, I am the Christ. But he acknowledged it. Because the name that mattered was Jesus. This was the name given. And this is the name under which he suffered. This is the name under which he died. He took no other name. He bore no other title. It was the name of his humiliation. And it was the name of Jesus that he was slain with. It was the name of Jesus that he died with. And it was the name of Jesus that he rose with. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Verse 4, the guards shook for fear of him, the angel who came to open the tomb and show him that Jesus was raised and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As As he has said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Who was raised? Jesus was. It is the name of his victorious resurrection. And it is his name which breaks the barrier of death for us. There is no other. The Muslims can go to Muhammad's tomb. They know where he's buried. He's still there. You can look at the rest of the world's religions and understand that the one problem which is insurmountable for all of them is the one problem that Jesus, in his name and in his strength and in his power, 
has defeated for us. Death no longer has dominion over us. And it no longer has dominion over us because Jesus Christ has died and has been raised eternal and has opened the way for us to enjoy eternal life. It is the name of his triumphant return and the name at which every knee will bow. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to understand something. Everybody's going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But only those who knew him this side of death will confess Jesus is my Lord. Amen. And they are the only ones who will be received as belonging to him. Because lordship is about ownership. We call him Lord because it means he gets to be the boss. He owns us. The favorite name of the disciples for themselves was bond slave. The Greek word is doulos. And in its plain, simple English, it means slave. They called themselves a slave of Christ, acknowledging that issue of ownership, acknowledging that issue of the fact that they had been purchased by the blood of Christ. That's why Paul writes, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price. But if you belong to him, then whose responsibility is it to care for you? His. See, he bought you. He owns you. Yes, he gets to command you, but he also bears the responsibility of taking care of you. And beloved, he will. He will care for you in this life, providing everything that you need. And he will care for you in the life to come. He is already preparing a place for you. And he is doing that because the name of Jesus is not only singular and powerful, it is also eternal. Look at me at Revelation chapter 5. I love this picture. And while at this point in my life I say you'll probably never hear me teach through the book of Revelation, God can change my mind if he wants. I still love this passage. Revelation chapter 5, starting at verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look at it. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open it and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, there's that branch and root again, by the way, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came 
and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the, 24, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nations, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. It said that the Lamb prevailed to open the scroll. How did he prevail? By his blood. He prevailed in his death. But I I want you to pay most attention in this beautiful picture to how Jesus appears in heaven as a lamb having been slain. Beloved, understand what this is telling us. When we see him, he will bear the marks of our redemption. He bears the scars that set us free. And he bears them for all of eternity. It's not because he can't be rid of them, but because he won't be. They are the marks of his love for us. They are the marks of his great travail by which he purchased for himself a people of his own possession. Beloved, this is the most beautiful picture of Christ. Eternally slain, eternally living, always bearing upon his person the marks of that terrible act. It is this same Jesus who will one day return for us. Acts 1.11, the angels rebuked the disciples gently and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him go into heaven. It is the eternal, singular, powerful name of Jesus that is our only hope. And I want to caution every person in the sound of my voice very earnestly. Any attempt to add to anything that Jesus has done by your work or the work of another, any attempt to add to any of it, to impart anybody else into the picture, any attempt to share of His glory, to partake of that and to say that you have had something to do with it, or anybody else has said something to do with it, will have the singular effect of leaving you outside of that grace. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Beloved, you you, you need to understand this. It is Christ and Christ alone who is your hope. And there is no secondary option now or ever. There is no need for a new third temple in which the Jews will offer sacrifices by which they will then be saved because that means that there is some other name given by which they must be saved. There is no opportunity for any other religion to be good enough if people are just sincere. Because that would mean there is some other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. There is no man who will ever be able to stand before God and say that my life is clean and I have not sinned and therefore you can judge me by my works and accept me into your presence, which would mean that there is some other name 
given under heaven under which at least that man must be saved. And all of these things are insidious lies that are constantly being woven into the fabric of our culture and woven into the fabric of our thinking, so much so that the church itself has become deceived about the truth of Jesus' name and nature. We have become deceived by the fact that others want to have some other way, which is why they hate us so much when we say, no, it is Jesus Christ and Him alone. They'll call us hateful. They'll call us all kinds of things. But the truth of the matter is, truth is truth. And it can't be changed. And it can't be avoided in the end. You can ignore it for a while now. But, in the end, that truth will stand. And you will confess with every other that Jesus Christ is Lord over all to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace to understand. And I pray, Lord, that your hand would be upon us, that we would shake off the bonds of the culture and shake off the bonds of human fear, and that we would speak the truth unapologetically. I pray, God, that you would display in us the truth of who Christ is and give to us the opportunity and the ability to speak the name of Jesus with clarity and with power, with courage and with passion. God, we know that Jesus deserves our undying affection. He deserves our love. He deserves our allegiance. He deserves our worship. And so often, we give him everything but. Forgive us for that. And help us be found faithful. Lord, I pray for your salvation to fall upon all within the sound of my voice who may not know you. By what other means they might might hear this message, I pray that it would go forth with power. And that you would use the truth of who Christ is to change the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.